Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Steve. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This week, we talk about the American midterm elections. We discuss whether or not the story is about and we do a bit of crystal ball gazing about what would have happened if there had been no election in 2017. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning. Uh, how late did you stay up for the midterms? I actually didn't. I went to bed uh, pretty early, to be honest. I, I so I know this is going to annoy a lot of people, but I uh, don't find American politics that interesting for a couple of and i don't find it that satisfying to watch live for a couple of reasons one um basically all american broadcasters are bad there's a lot of sort of slidey graphics and people in weird like you know cgi studios and vox pops with people saying exactly the things like from the script that you would imagine them to say from that political perspective i mean and also so 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 obviously an endemic problem uh, that we have uh, talked about and talked about our own uh, you know, partial uh, failure to, is, to escape it um, of journalism during elections is people, things get covered through the prism of what, of, you know, like basically people decide what's going to happen and cover it accordingly. The, the really good thing, though, about um, British political journalism is basically on election night itself, uh, the academics take over. If you actually think about um, the BBC's election programme, although in the dead hours you will occasionally have like stuff which ages really badly where like, you know, the BBC's political editor sits there going like, well, now Ed Miliband's lost, you know, probably the leadership election is going to be a straight up fight between Chucker Amuna and Yvette Cooper. Um Yes, I know what you mean, but there's, what but, you do is you get an exit poll which has been freakishly accurate. To by, and 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 a lot of it is dominated by academics going, um, particularly actually the uh, Radio 4's very good uh, uh, results program. Academics going, well, look, this swing means this. We can kind of... But crucially, it, was, it actually is results-led, uh, uh, whereas a lot of the time you have this kind of like, we have decided that, say... Um, I mean, so a really good case case of this, right, is, uh, uh, I realise I have no idea how to pronounce his name, uh, Beto O'Rourke. I think it's Beto, but then I I agree. And this is the, also the weird thing about covering American, like reading about American stuff, is I've, I've read so much more than I've watched because yeah. I've read it through Twitter and through American news sites. 
but because that got covered through this, oh, it's close. I mean, it, that is a phenomenal. And so there are some people sneering about momentum saying, oh, you know, we're going to try and learn from this. I so mean, he ran for the Senate race in Texas against Ted Cruz, the former presidential candidate, once memorably described by Marie Leconte as, what's it? She said, like, why, why does is he his all... face always happy or sad? It says, I, lo- it I was like lasagna, lasagna, but it's but not, not ordered. ordered. Yeah. yeah, which is, I think, his political epitaph, frankly. But he's kind of pretty hateful, even among Republicans. So there was a lot of excitement that a Democratic challenger could get anywhere near him, really, in Texas. Um, and Beto O'Rourke did, or Beto O'Rourke, whatever it turns out to be, um, did have a, it was a good showing. He ran a really great campaign. He raised a shed load of money. And also, if you look at the, if you look at the down ballot races in Texas, right, you can. Yeah, you know, look. You know, people do vote for the top. The top of the ticket is what draws people out. You can, you can, you can make a really strong case. Then, uh, yeah, he he just objectively did really, really well. Uh, I mean, there are many reasons why I'm skeptical of learning from America, just because American politics, to me at least, is just so different and alien to European politics. And a lot of the time, the lessons are either sort of broadened about method or are just like first spend more money on. Yeah. Donuts than you do on your whole campaign. Like, and give everyone an iPad and like amazingly impressive software, and it's like, yeah, but that's never going to. You know, you also need to have a really impressive candidate. Like you, but having Barack Obama's strategy is good, but it really helps to also have a candidate as good as Barack Obama. Yeah, and so I am. However, um, those are all perfectly sort of good reasons to go. There's not very much you can usefully learn from uh, from uh, uh, Beto or Beto or. Yeah, we'll just Should we just give him wrong. his own pronunciation that is just the podcast only pronunciation? John O'Rourke. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm allowed to do that because people mispronounce my middle name all the time. Um, the uh, So if we assume that uh, Thingamie O'Rourke, uh, you know, if, if you could learn how to add eight points to your vote share somewhere, you know, mm. I mean, if you if you do that in the Labour Party, congratulations, you've just somehow won quite a you know, big parliamentary, you know, you're suddenly governing with a parliamentary majority. So... There's an awful lot of, I think, in US journalism, even more of that kind of like, we're going to analyse this through whether or not this is a win and not in a useful way. So I don't tend to watch it live other than when I have to cover it because we now, of course, have, you know, NS America. Not my shit, not my monkeys. Um, I think the headlines for me, I I read a really interesting piece this morning by Ezra Klein of Vox, which said, don't be fooled by the fact. So, okay, for people who haven't caught up on it, the headline is that the Republicans held the Senate there were fewer of the seats that were likely to, you know, it was a favourable contest for them this time. It would be less favourable next time. But um, Democrats took the House. Um, so what that means is that they get to have a lot of committees in which they can summon people, berate them for eight hours, they can subpoena stuff. You know, there is a lot more blocking and and scrutiny that they can now do. Well, also, crucially, it does basically, it is sort of the end for Trump's domestic agenda across large chunks of, of, of the piece. Um but his point was that the uh, unemployment in America is now 3.7%. You know, when um, Obama won his victory, it was something like 8%. I mean, the economy is booming. And you might say, well, that's a legacy of actually, you know, things that not things that necessarily Trump has done. Although there is a, a kind of argument that the way, you know, Trump's economic policy is the kind of least bad plank of his uh, policy, at least in the short term. But, you know, it, it comes back to the thing that you've always said about him underperforming a kind of generic Republican in the 2016 race, right? He has very badly underperformed a generic Republican in the midterms, even though it, on the surface it looks like not a, you know, people want a sort of wholesale rejection of Trumpism where everyone goes, oh my God, we were had. You actually, now you mention it, he is a mad racist demagogue with no respect for democratic institutions. 
conversations. And that's not what has happened. So there is a temptation to be quite soft on him, but I think that is probably incorrect. Yeah, I mean, so I, I uh, also uh, read and indeed linked to the client blog in my free morning email, guys. Yay. Sign up. Um, so the the important thing about the the the, the client showed both at the last election and this one, and it kind of does come back to my point that if you if in twenty twelve you'd said so in four years time, everyone knows that Hillary Clinton will will be the candidate. Uh, yeah, everyone knew that in twenty twelve. Yeah, we will be the candidate. Uh, you know, the Democrats will have lost X number of of of, of seats in elections in midterms. The economy will be doing at X percent. Uh, it will be eight years. Any political scientist would go, oh well, the Republican candidate, whoever they may be, is heavily favoured to win. But Hillary Clinton's approval rating at that time, most popular politician in America, uh, may be enough to see her through. And then if you'd said, oh, yeah, by the way, Hillary Clinton's approval rating will have fallen through the floor, they go, oh, God, no, the Republicans will will win that. And then, of course, he did. But he did. And so it is a similar pattern in that it was a... It was basically about as bad as the Senate election could have gone in. And there were a series of yeah, very difficult maps because mostly in Republican uh, states. But they ideally needed to have slightly fewer losses in order to be able to set up taking the Senate back. Although it does basically confirm sort of a lot of stuff we kind of already know about American politics. One, that Americans are starting to vote in a more normal way, right? Uh, you, you, you very rarely anywhere else in Europe... Uh, do you get somewhere where, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, Hackney, case in point, just because I'm feeling unimaginative this morning, you don't have a situation in which Diane Abbott wins by loads, uh, Hackney elects, you know, votes for a conservative mayor and the council is uh, is Lib Dem. Uh, you, you you just do not get that type of uh, political, labor, vari- labor, labor, political variation yeah. uh, in most countries. Now, the US is starting to become more normal in the... Uh, you know, the one of the big, you know, the big reasons why the Democrats uh, uh, won won the popular vote and also won uh, the House back is, and there were a number of Republicans in in Senate in con- congressional districts which Hillary Clinton won by quite a big way, and there aren't very many of those people left this morning. The so the difficulty that the Republicans have, even though obviously at the moment they have managed it, is it is very hard for their coalition to win the presidential election. Uh, they obviously did not win a popular, you know, the popular vote, and they had a very narrow electoral college win uh, last time. Similarly, it is very difficult for the Democratic coalition because the Republicans are so strong in so many small states to win a Senate majority. Of course, they possibly could, uh, but they uh, equally might not. The other big problem is the American Constitution. Um, I mean, in many ways, is very poorly designed, but crucially, it's not designed for political parties to behave like modern political parties go on um in then if you have a situation in which it's built around the idea that the legislature and the executive will cooperate um and the second that they don't uh, and also crucially that the minority uh uh will has a fair amount of power as well mm. and the different uh the different franchises as it were obviously that slightly evolved since since the original all um do slightly incline you to throw out different election results. Uh, And they also give astonishing amounts of power to their elected officials, right? For example, again, to use the the UK, um, although there were council seats and the Conservatives lost last time and they weren't very happy about it, and there were, of course, uh, places where Labour lost ground, no one uh, 
you know, no one was saying, oh God, well, now that uh, we've lost uh, some more uh, Labour seats on Barnet Council, uh, the election's going to be even harder to win because they're going to move all of the polling districts in the Labour wards to, you know, a trench at night where you have like, first answer me these riddles three. Um, this is the thing that I really took from reading the coverage is that I think if you were, if you were, we, I mean, we often do this as a kind of uh, exercise about trying to imagine a foreign correspondent as, as if you were going to the, like the DRC reporting on America's election, right? And the corruption is just insane. You get the situation where people are tossed off electoral rolls. You have to bring in 15,000 forms of ID. You know, you um, the, the felony laws are so stacked that actually you end up disenfranchising just huge amounts of very specific populations, unsurprisingly not the ones that um, tend to vote Democrats. Um, and you have to queue for, I mean, people were queuing for three or four hours. I think that's the thing that's really hard to encounter. You know, I'm sure this happened to you last election day. I wandered into my local primary school. I brought my polling card because I'm good like that. I said my name. They had a little tiny pencil. They crossed off my name. I went in, I took my slip and I did it. That was it. And Nonetheless, electoral fraud in Britain is tiny, absolutely tiny. But America has this incredibly harsh system about trying, and it will, it will ask for forms of ID that often people don't have. And also, incredibly unfairly, there are grotesque cases of people who, say, voted while they were on probation and didn't realise that that was an offence and have ended up jailed for literally years. I mean, it is an incredibly capricious system that is almost designed to intimidate certain populations out of voting where it can't actually make it physically much harder for them to do yeah, so. Yeah, and that, that is the aim. And I think you're exactly right about how uh, one ought to cover it. One of the things I always find a bit grating about uh, the coverage of, of US elections is there are so many people on Twitter and lol, why do they have these long lines? Haven't these people heard of pen and paper? And it's one of those things where it's like, no, guys, this isn't this isn't an accident, right? It's not in these like these 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 hick Americans accident, as you say, like it is about intimidating yeah. specific groups of people into going, look, we're going to make it really difficult for you to vote. And then with this added um, complete breakdown of the cultural taboo on um, visible cheating. So in Georgia, which uh, may go or go to a, a runoff if, if neither candidate gets uh, 50% of the vote plus one, um, you have a situation in which the uh, candidate for the governorship, his current job... This is a Republican. Uh, yeah, yeah. Is effectively the elections rules administrator. He has visibly... You know, yeah. And this is, I mean, obviously there are a lot of people in the United States which are who are, who are angry about it, but it's kind of, it just, it's baked into the, the political conversation then he will do this and if he wins it's not like the other republican governors will go well that guy is a criminal and yeah, yeah this is this is against all our values it's like well we won them's the breaks um i think that's the thing i found absolutely fascinating about it and something that's bizarre because obviously i've been researching my book sorry to mention it almost as much as you mentioned your free morning email but the amount of stuff that people will just accept because that's the way it has always been i think that is just one of the most powerful forces in politics and in the case of american elections the idea that actually, you know, it, it, you have to kind of run through a hailstorm to vote is to anybody who has ever just wandered into their primary school with a pencil is just incredible. Yeah, and I think the thing I found, yeah, this, so this this odd debate about you know whether or not it's a wave election, um, where, which is one of those things which I just think, a, this is a, a weird preoccupation for reporters to have, but to the extent that it matters, well, yes, obviously, if you win by by nine percentage points. Um, which is what the Democrats seem to have done in yeah, the popular vote, right? Then you uh, you have you have definitely won in, in a wave or a landslide. Now, obviously, our electoral system throws out disproportionate responses, but but very although people might intuitively go, wait, is that, did David Cameron really gain that many seats? 
they understand that David Cameron uh, had a phenomenally good night because he gained 1997 seats in, in 2010, but because of how badly Michael Howard had done in 2005, mm. he wasn't in. People understand that. And even though there is uh, sadly not uh, anywhere near as much of a groundswell for changing our electoral system as I would like, there does at least seem to be a basic understanding that... Um, more you, votes equal more seats. Yeah, yeah, or at least ought to equal more seats. sometimes, in the case of the SNP wave in 2015, right, it just so happened that you just reached a tipping point where actually the result was very disproportionate. Mm. And it got, you know, UKIP got hammered the other way because their vote was too disparate. And indeed this weird thing where, so Labour have managed this very elegant thing where the Labour Party has managed to... Uh, unilaterally declare PR for elections for itself. I realised this other day going back, then basically since twenty in the last two elections, the Labour Party is basically getting a proportionate share of parliamentary seats. Of course, their big problem is no one else is getting a proportionate share of parliamentary seats. But it was on those things, like, oh, that's a nice coincidence. Well, so they got 40% of the vote and 40% of the seats yeah, they basically, in 2017. Yeah, they, they are, yeah, it's kind of, you know, essentially that's kind of what you would expect, like de Hunt or whatever, to spit out for them. Um, it's too early in the morning for De Haunt, Stephen. Let's leave it there. For a couple of decades between the First and Second World Wars, something mysterious happened. There were murders in country houses, on golf courses, in far-flung parts of the globe and quaint English villages. No fictional character was safe. Because these events were all fictional, the plots of novels that flooded the market in the 1920s and 30s People couldn't get enough of all of the inventive ways that writers like Agatha Christie, Dorothy L. Sayers, and more could think of for people to die. This period came to be known as the golden age of detective fiction, and for good reason. So that's what I'm going to be doing in this podcast, telling the stories that lurk in the shadows of the famous detective novels. If you've ever stayed up late reading under the covers to find out who done it, then this podcast is for you. Find us at shedoneitshow.com on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram as She Done It Show and in all major podcast apps. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. In your column this week, available in all good uh, news agents, you've written about these ongoing burbling rumours about a split or a kind of frosting. That's like that's the thing you have on cake, isn't it? Never mind. I did briefly type the word Freudeur, but then I realised I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, I think I'm going to seem like a wanker if I use this word in <laughs> copy, and so I, I didn't. Oh, that's good. But I, I think it's a Freudeur or a Freudeur. Freudeur. Uh, between John McDonald and Jeremy Corbyn, which has kind of had it come out in a couple of different news stories. There's been one about the tax um, wrangle post the budget. There was one about whether or not uh, Seb Corbyn, who is currently chief of staff, oh, was uh, chief of staff. and has been demoted um, in the McDonald team. Uh, and there was another one as well, which was like he didn't come to his birthday party. No, what was it? Come on, what was the last uh, one? Was there a story that they hadn't spoken for a week or something? Or something I... about like not running interviews past the Leadership. Oh, so yeah, it was in the, the, yeah, he started. Then John McDonald started announcing in interviews in order to get around the fact that the leader's office doesn't sign things off. So you have you are not impressed with this theory that there that it is it is Blair Brown all over again. Tell me why. So I think there are a couple of uh, of sort of reasons. I mean, one, and I'm aware this is something in podcast listeners are tired of me saying, but it is nonetheless true that their relationship is a lot more like Cameron Osborne's. 
Now, yes, Osborne did occasionally kind of would just roll his eyes at, you know, going, why are we having a referendum on the EU being a case in point? But uh, Osborne understood that there were bits of the electorate that Cameron could reach and he couldn't, and he understood the importance of that project. And that is essentially uh, the same. And crucially, they have a much more enduring and long-standing uh, friendship. The other reason why I kind of um, sort of roll my eyes about it is a lot of it, I think, is based around people believing uh, two myths about those two men, right? So um, the first myth, of course, is this thing that, yeah, and it's obviously within the business of of politicians to try and turn themselves into legends. And I think McDonnell is broadly right about the legend he's trying to craft to himself, which is, yeah, like, oh, you know, I'm stable and dull Um, and, Kind of boring bank manager, right? Yeah, like, it it makes sense. And part of of the story, his story, is this whole, like, you know, it was in 1992 when I lost, you know, he wheeled it out on Newsnight this week. Yeah, in 1992, when I lost, I realised, you know, you've got to reassure people on tax, which I mean... it's So a- that's in the 92 election, the Tory, he contested the Tory candidate in Hayes and Harlington, which is now his seat, but the Tories won it as yeah. part of the major um, win. So his theory from that is now that actually that was, was that the tax bombshell election? That was the tax bombshell. Right. So that's now, that's why he's now backing the um, Philip Hammond tax cuts. Yeah, which I mean, it's one of those things where it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a great story and like more power to them. I mean, the problem is though, is if you think about it for more than two minutes, it's obviously not true, is it? I mean, if if, if that is the case, you you you've, it, that that's a great explanation for John McDonnell in twenty seventeen. Is is the contention of people that he was replaced by a duplicate when he was laying down shadow budgets to Gordon Brown, saying they hadn't been brave enough on tax and spend it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, of course. That is not the case, right? Then, if they, there well, is, not at least because the 2017 yeah. manifesto had hikes on people earning over eighty thousand and one hundred and fifty thousand. Like he's not against taxing people more. Yeah, no, I mean, also in 2015, in the leadership campaign which he ran, uh, Jeremy Corbyn was talking about increases in basic rate. Uh, I mean, you know, if, from a wonkish perspective, in, in my view, that is probably a nettle you've got to go and grasp at some point. But that, you know, but obviously. I don't have to try and win elections, so uh, it's very easy for me to say that. Um, and it's one of those things where, you know, it's a myth that people want to believe because it's true of so much of the Labour Party, but it, it's very hard to stack up the idea that, that, that McDonnell is this ultra-cautious person who is, as a result, uh, you know, deeply falling out with with everyone around him. Um, the other myth, I think, then uh, it kind of sustains it, uh, because for it to be true, it Unlike TBGBs, right, where, you know, Gordon Brown would do something, Tony Blair, well, Gordon Brown staff would do something, Tony Blair staff would do it back and vice versa, is that they uh, they require this idea that the leader's office is a largely passive entity. Uh, so, you know, as I, you know, when I do my column, uh, uh, the first state stage before I've even decided the topic is I call people semi at random and kind of go like, how do you feel stuff is going? And you know, one of the things I mentioned was, yeah, well, look, there are all of these stories. What do you think about them? Mm. And because uh, Corbyn is, you know, polite and courteous and makes time for people, uh, and he has this image as a kind of like, you know, like Magic socialist Dumbledore kind of thing, right? <laughs> yeah. People, I think, often kind of think that that means that he's like, and also because he's excessively loyal to people who are terrible at their jobs who've stuck by him, people have this idea that he's therefore like soft or daft. Um, this idea that if uh, if Seb Corbyn had been demoted as an act of revenge against Jeremy Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn would just be like, well, shucks, I guess I can't do anything about that, seeing as I'm only the hegemonic leader of the Labour Party. Uh, I mean, 
it's it's mad, right? It, it, it it's based on this idea that he is some kind of cuddly, like you know, slightly simplistic grandpa figure who's wandered into politics by accident. Now, the odd thing is, although uh, John McDonnell has taken to uh, Twitter to go look, these stories about a split between us aren't true. Then um, this idea that you know John McDonnell is you know cautious and scarred by 1992, and Jeremy Corbyn is a a lovely granddad who's like you know so butter wouldn't melt in his mouth that someone would demote his son out of revenge and he'd just be like, well, I guess and I'm not going to use any of my powers to defund your office or in any way punish you for this act of vengeance against my literal flesh Child. and blood. <laughs> like, um, it, it's helpful to them that people don't still, despite how close they are to power, still don't see them as a, a serious political movement to win an election from the left. There we go. So we've debunked we've debunked Grandpa Jeremy and Bank Manager John. Thank you very much, Stephen. And now for a section we like to call You Ask Us. Amazing, amazing intensity. Um, tell me what people are asking us, Stephen. So I really like this question because I love a good uh, hypothetical history. Um this is from Noah. What would be the current state of British politics if Theresa May hadn't called a snap election in April 2017? Ooh, shiny. So first of all, she... Well, hmm. Okay, okay we have to do Brexit first, right? I Do you think she'd be trying to... Do you think she'd have more of a domestic agenda alongside Brexit? Do you think she'd be trying to bring back grammar schools? Like that would stuff would still be hovering around the place. Like all, you know, all that stuff that got just t- tossed overboard. Well, I mean, so... The domestic stuff, she would still have this problem that she didn't have a doesn't have a big enough didn't have a big enough parliamentary majority to do any of it, and Whitehall uh, would still um, still be preoccupied with Brexit. I think the the big and crucial difference would be that um, now they have no domestic agenda because of Brexit, but we also know that there is never going to be a domestic agenda because there is no parliamentary majority, and the things she wants, she's far too weak to do for a variety of reasons, and so you know. No one even really has to pretend that grammar school... Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. this thing that basically, like, you know, one of the reasons why Justine Greening was sacked was her failure to not sneer whenever she went, well, yeah, of course we'll roll out some more grammar schools. I hear they haven't been utterly discredited by every serious study of how they work. Um, I guess the economics is the one thing that probably wouldn't be different, right? Because the reason that they called that election is because Philip Hammond couldn't get through his budget, really, or was going to have lots of things going to have to be kind of tossed off the side of that budget. And what he did in light of them not having a majority in this budget was you know, really loosen the, the string. So I think that would have just still happened anyway. I don't think they would have come back round for another budget that had tough to pass measures, even with a small majority. Well, so the weird... I mean, there are many. I was about to say the weird thing about the choices they made in the 2017 manifesto and then realised that that was a, a very bold use of a definite article. One of the many weird things about the 2017 manifesto, right, is the problem in 2015 is it's a coalition document, right? It's designed to make the Lib Dems the party of tax rises, yada, 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 and to just force them to, like, make you do a bunch of stuff that actually makes your life easier as the Conservative Party. Um, and instead they ended up committed to... Um, an even more disproportionate cut-spaced way of uh, of of having the public spending uh, commitments met, which turned out to be politically impossible because it you know ended Osborne's career. And even though I even so, obviously every study shows the vast majority of Brexit the Brexit vote was not about austerity. 
every study also shows enough of the Brexit vote was about uh, those recent cuts. Then without them, we would still be in the EU, uh, albeit with a, a very, very close run thing. Um, so the thing is, all of the but they didn't use the manifesto to get rid of uh, their really silly commitments on tax. Mm. Uh, they they actually didn't use uh, that mandate for anything. The interesting question I have is the thing that has vanished is that you would talk to you know civil servants, ministers, conservative MPs, and no matter how uh, they felt about Theresa May, they then had to go. Of course, she's twenty points ahead in the poll as polls, and she's going to be prime minister for a thousand years. So I guess I've got no choice but to go along with it. You know, the the the, the most important thing to have in politics is the in terms of controlling your party is the ability to take lasting revenge. If you're going to vanish in a, in a month's time, I mean... You yeah, know, your powers said, of patronage yeah, are yes. no, um, and non-patronage are no longer I mean, good. Well, the other thing, I guess, is that um, we would probably have a Brexit deal already, right? Because she would have... The backstop in Ireland wouldn't be such an issue. Well, I mean, yeah, this is the thing. It's, although there are a number of Conservative... Em- well, one of the really fascinating ways in the 20th Do they really election, care, though? Do they really care enough, actually, when it comes to it? Do they care about Northern Ireland enough? Well, so... I think, it's, yeah, this is a way in the 2017 election has really changed uh, history because they do now, partly because they've all, they're all on the record saying it and they've worked themselves up into a lather on it. But I, you know, I mean, it's a bit, it's a bit like this revisionism about the welfare bill, right, where people pretend that the point wasn't to send a signal about um, being tough on welfare. There's like this, this parallel universe narrative, just like, I distinctly remember A, being brief and B, giving quite a flattering write-up to why why uh, the leadership thought this was a good idea. You mean under Harman, under the 2015, Har- uh, during the 2015 Labour leadership election, they abstained on the second reading, vote against it, the third reading, yeah. which was a kind of like, we're thinking about it, but there's some stuff in there that we like. But actually, no, come on, that's bad. bad and yeah, there's now been like this sort of myth-making about how it was actually more complex than that because of uh, Labour's internal politics. And it's just one of those things where it's just like... And, and the thing is, clearly a lot of the people who repeat this on Twitter and indeed in the PLP do believe this to be true. It's just uh, I do have the recordings of the original briefings and I know that this is not true. And similarly, with Conservative MPs, people who are saying, it's fine, the solution on the uh, Irish border is just for Northern Ireland to enter the same, cust- you know, to have customs port uh, entrance points at ports. Because they ended in a situation where they were dependent on the DUP, they've now started to go, no, no, we could never do this. And it's like, I mean, loads of you were suggested were yeah yeah. I mean, the, the the number of people who kind of you know have sort of you know memory hold what they they believed about that, but the um that memory holding is yeah. I mean, it is like the welfare bill stuff, right? It doesn't really matter uh, other than to you know yeah. Obviously, it does matter what the truth is in terms of what we write, but it doesn't really matter in terms of what politicians do if what they say is not what they used to believe. If they sincerely believe it, then that is the crucial mm. difference. And yeah, I think then uh, on Brexit, uh, we would be heading towards a Canada-style deal with effectively Northern Ireland, uh, you know, shuttered off uh, from the the rest of it. Um, I guess the other interesting question, right, is would the transformation in uh, Jeremy Corbyn's uh, opinion poll ratings and indeed the size of the Parliament, well, the size of Parliament and Labour's poll position have happened without a snap election? I can't work out how it would have. That's really interesting because you're right because at that point it would just, there is no, in the same way that there's no test of Theresa May, what we know about um, Corbyn from his 
poll ratings now is that they're really not great. And the explanation being that for a large amount of his supporters, they need to see him. They want, you know, they when he's not out there front and centre in an election campaign, he's kind of disappears off their, their grid. So he's not getting that kind of, he's not sustained the kind of ratings he had last year. So there's every reason to suggest that he wouldn't have improved his poll ratings without that election campaign. Yeah, and I think, yeah, the fascinating question is, uh, you know, well, no, I mean, I was say, so I was about to say the fascinating question is, uh, given how bad the polls were, given how bad uh, the local elections, which were kind of before the campaign kicked in, so I think it feels certain to me that the local elections would have been that bad, given uh, Labour's uh, position on Brexit, which was, you know, not in a position that was exactly aligned with the sympathies of the, of the membership. Given all of that, could there have been a shift in how Labour Party members felt about Jeremy Corbyn? And the weird thing is, is in theory, yes, but in practice his internal opponents uh, would have found a way to mess it up because they're just too divided. Uh, you know, like the problem, you know, the reason why I don't like the word, there are lots of reasons why I don't like the word Labour moderate, but the reason why I think it's a much, it's actually a useless term is that it uh, um, implies a level of purpose and unity to Corbyn scepticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if they all thought one way, they would probably be more effective whereas of course the problem is is that they continually undermine one another because they're all in such different political positions so i suspect you'd have a much more querulous labor party the fascinating thing is right so obviously you know we've kind of forgotten this because there would have been a split well so this this to me is the other the other thing right so um you know, the, one of the major deterrents to a split is what happened to the Lib Dems at the last election versus what was happening to the Lib Dems in by-elections and council elections. Uh, and I, again, you know, the, the kind of Tim Farron's, uh, uh, you know, reproductive and, and sexual rights problems would not have been exposed outside of a a, a, a real election. Mm-hmm. No one in a local election goes... Tim Farron hates abortion. Yeah, that just, it just you know, that, that wouldn't obtain. So, you know, you therefore assume the Lib Dems are doing a bit well. I think we can also, therefore, we can also safely assume that um, the various, you know, you know the mural, um, the, uh, God, what was the one between the mural and the English the irony remark? The wreath. Uh, uh, yeah, all of that stuff would have happened, but um, splitting would, would feel uh, less risky, I think, to a lot of people. Okay, so um, that's where we are then. If, if election hadn't happened, our prediction is... Still no domestic agenda, but everyone's a bit less happy about that in the Tory party. Corbyn still looking extremely ropey, but unmovable. Possibly a split and maybe Lib Dem fight back. Just think what we could have had. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-host, Stephen Bush. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Our theme music is by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Why not subscribe to Stephen's free morning email? I'm sure you haven't heard about that before, but it is still brilliant. Uh, Just simply Google Stephen Bush Morning Call. is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. 
Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.